Minutes by Minutes, project number five. It's Silverado this time, that's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Best saddle up now, kids, cause here we go! Howdy, everyone, and welcome back. This is the Silverado Minute Podcast. Each week, Movie by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed Western Silverado. We do one minute of screen time per episode. I am your guest host for this week. My name is Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I've been the host of the Bull Durham Minute for the Movie by Minute world. I also host the podcast Locked On MLB, where we talk about baseball all year long. I've been a TV producer, got an Emmy nomination for my troubles. I've directed a feature film, a bunch of other short films. I've been a stand-up comedian, an actor, a writer, and a special education teacher. I've done a lot of different things. I've also appeared in a bunch of the Movie by Minute podcasts, including Indiana Jones Minute, including The Wilder Ride, including Rocketeer Minute, Airport Minute, uh, League of Their Own, MASH, Close Encounters, Dark Knight, Toy Story, a bunch of them. I've done a whole, whole bunch of them. And I love this format. And I'm so, so happy to be doing this for Silverado, which is a Western I absolutely adore. I'm going to be doing today, minute number 61, which opens with Cobb kind of razzing Payton playfully about the $13 he owes and bringing Kelly in to make sure a line of credit is open and ends with Cobb revealing that he's the sheriff of the town and he gives a wonderfully maniacal laugh. So whenever I do one of these movie by minute podcasts, whether it's my own or I guest host them, I I always like to do the first episode solo uh, for this reason. I talk a lot. I talk a lot. And when I have a guest on, I get sort of self-conscious because I I want to say a lot of things, but I also know that I want my guests to say a lot of things. So uh, when I'm doing it solo, um, I don't have to worry if I'm talking too much because who the heck is going to be talking here? I want to just talk a little bit about this minute that shows a, a wonderful, playful side to Brian Dennehy's Cobb, which in a couple of minutes we're going to see a darker and more sinister side of Cobb. But we're the brilliant Brian Dennehy, who I still can't believe did not get an Academy Award nomination for this performance, and actually never got an Academy Award nomination ever for any of his performances. He, As he's surrounded in this scene by people with either won Oscars or have been nominated, Linda Hunt won an Oscar for The Year of Living Dangerously, Kevin Klein won one for uh, uh, Fish Called Wanda, And Richard Jenkins, who plays Kelly, received nominations for The Visitor and for The Shape of Water. But the most dominant force in this whole scene never got a nomination. Strange. But anyway, uh, I I love, especially because this is the villain. I like villains who have a sense of humor, a sense of warmth in this scene. He's very clearly a friend of Payton's, a little bit of a ball buster, but he's he smiles. He legitimately wants to know why he's in town. He honestly offers him a room, does so earnestly. 
of which uh, Stella tells him there's a room available, and seems to be, he loves being a bit of a braggart here that he wants Payne to work at the bar, but shows that he's the sheriff, which implies that the law means nothing. They could do whatever they want here. And so there's a little bit of bragging going on from him, but playful bragging. This is a really playful scene from Cobb, who is, you know, we're going to find out is the heavy of this film. I mean that simply by his role as the antagonist, not any knock on the girth of Brian Dennehy. I love that he stands next to Stella and he is this larger than life, gigantic character. And Stella is obviously very small in stature. And when they get together, though, they you know, she's of course standing on the perch, but it doesn't seem like uh, an unusual pairing of people, you know, that they look like they're in some ways on the level. And there's a, there's a subtext to Brian Dennehy laughing that he is making money at a saloon. He's the sheriff of the town and doing this in front of Peyton because they are two guys who used to ride and do these odd jobs to pick up money. And it's kind of Peyton saying, I've made it. I did it. I don't need to ride around and be anyone's, you know, do everyone's bidding. People do my bidding now. I've won. And that little funny maniacal laugh he has is incredibly charming and warm. And it just shows the the depth of Brian Dennehy's performance that he gets who Cobb is in many ways. And it's one of the reasons why I think he's such an interesting villain in this film. He's not a sinister character. He's someone who feels like, hey, I made it. I paid my dues. And yeah, uh, some of the ways I want to make money is not going to be 100% legal, but I'm the sheriff, so we're going to get away with it. And it's my turn to cash in. It's my turn. If you see, he's dressed fancy. He's got the he's he's dressed better than anybody there. And at this point, we've seen that Payton is still kind of piecing himself together. He you know, we we first see him in his underwear. And bit by bit, he gets his hat, he gets his gun, he gets his horse back. And there's a sense that he's saying to him, if you stay here with me, we're going to do all right. And uh, there's something borderline admirable about that. You know, I I was a performer for a long time and uh, uh, did stand-up comedy. And there's a lot of times that I found there were there are people who were you know would love to have brought their friends along for whenever they found some level of success. You know, if they got onto a TV show, they tried to make sure some of the people they came up with were there with them. When I I worked on a couple of big TV shows in my life, and almost always one of the people working with me was someone who I knew as a struggling comedian, and we all kind of try to raise everyone up. And there's a sense of Cobb wants to do this with Peyton. Cobb really wants Peyton to be his buddy, to be his partner to say, Hey, you know, I know you, you know, not everyone liked you in our posse in the past, but he does. And you see throughout the film and you see in the scene right after this involving Kelly, that he wants to give Peyton more power. You know, 
it's very simple to make a villain in a Western be a mustache twirler, to have it be so over-the-top evil. But Cobb isn't that. He's just corrupt. And while we see there's a sinister, sinister side to him and a sadistic side to him, we also see that what he really wants to do is just stay in this town and make piles of money. That's what he wants to do. And in some ways, he feels like he earned it. And he knows if he turns the other way, looks the other way, some bad things will happen. But you know what? Bad things are going to happen anyway. So why doesn't he profit from it? You know, it's interesting that you see characters throughout this film who are people who kind of drop anchor in certain towns. We saw that with uh, John Cleese's character in Turley, that he's someone who wasn't from there, but he dropped anchor and this is where he is. And Cobb is trying to say to Payton, drop anchor here. Look what's going to happen. You did on your own. You ended up in your underwear. And, and remember, Cobb saw Payton at that point at the trading post when he found the horse. He saw that he was in his underwear. He saw that he was at a low point. And so when he offered him this and continues to offer him, it's like, hey, don't look at me like everything's going great for you. You were, you were in the under, you're in your underwear. They were shooting at your balls. Be here in a saloon. There's a place for you to stay. You can make money. Don't worry about the law. I'm the law. You're in heaven. Is that great line? Welcome to heaven. And, you know, Kevin Klein is such a wonderful actor that he's able to express it. He has very few lines in the scene. And, you know, he sees there's a certain amount of him being impressed by him, especially at you know, second 55, when he sees the tin star on Cobb, that there's a sense of, oh, wow, we can really get away with anything here. I mean, you're the person we're afraid of in the law, but I think we're okay. You know, there's a lot, I, I, I enjoy scenes like this where things are shown and not told and relationships here are, are being set up and alluded to with Kelly at the top. We're going to find out what happened with him. But it, Cobb is really one of the most interesting villains in, uh, in an 80s movie. There are a lot of great villains in 80s films. And the ones that are, the, the, I think, the most interesting are sometimes the ones who think they're right. I think Cobb, in many ways, thinks he's right. Yeah, I'm a little corrupt. Everyone's going to be corrupt. So why don't we just you know, cash it on and make this a, a fun town to live in. You know, in some ways, Khan in Star Trek II thinks he's the hero of the movie, which makes him one of the most interesting villains of any 1980s film. You know, there's a, a, an element of Belloc from Raiders of the Lost Ark in this, and that he's just someone who is maybe lined with the wrong people, but for a purpose. But just getting this, you know, everyone in this scene just plays it so well. It's just that Dennehy is such a force of nature in the film that he just eclipses everybody. And it's his energy just per permeates throughout the town, throughout the bar. And you're seeing just the conflict and 
and Kevin Klein were thinking like, huh, this could be pretty good for me, couldn't it? So, um, I mean, that's basically what I have to say about the minute itself. I'm going to bring in on a couple of guests over the next few days uh, to talk about the next few minutes, and we're going to break down a lot of the of Danny Glover's performance and Joe Seneca's performance, and we're going to return to Danny at the, the last bunch of minutes. But I want to just talk a little bit about my experience with the movie. Uh, I was it was eighty five, so I was thirteen years old when this film came out, and I was a big fan of Monty Python and a big fan of Raiders and Empire and Jedi. And I was just learning really what a screenwriter does, what a director does, really beginning to understand film. Uh, 85 was a watershed year for me as a film watcher because I, I think I matured a lot as a film watcher and really the movie Brazil, which came out later this year, which I saw in January, February of 1986, was really the film that made me, uh, really changed how I watched movies. And I understood that a film could be more than just a fun adventure or a funny comedy. Uh, but I was beginning to mature as a, as a film watcher here. And I watched a lot of Siskel and Ebert and try to understand what, you know, well-received movies were but i also just as i said i loved summer movies i loved big adventure films and uh raiders and empire and jedi were three of my favorite movies of all time and so when i found out that the guy who wrote and directed this also wrote the scripts for those movies i got intrigued and of course it was john cleese also got me intrigued i didn't know kevin costner was i didn't know kevin klein was forgive me i hadn't popped in sophie's choice at that point I didn't know Scott Glenlas, although I had seen The Right Stuff. I saw The Right Stuff came out in uh, 83. I think we saw it in February, uh, February or March of 84. Uh, I know we saw it in 84 because there was a lot of stuff about John Glenn and his presidential campaign at the time. But, it's, but I just, I guess I didn't put two and two together that uh, uh, Scott Glenn was who he was, was Alan Shepard in The Right Stuff. But the film itself, we I saw at the uh, Lexington, Massachusetts, Sachs Cinema with my mother and father and my brother, Ted. My brother, Ted, is now a very successful television producer and writer. And we would watch tons of movies together. We, there were these rituals that we had as a family. We were very early on having a VCR and we rented tapes very early on. We also, my brother and I were the only people in the world who could figure out how to program a VCR. So we didn't say 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And we taped every movie. We tried to consume every movie that we could. And, but we also would go to the movies with my mom and dad. And a lot of times we would go to what we called the little theaters which were the second run theaters. We could see a movie for a buck and a half. And so if you waited a few months, you didn't pay full ticket. And we would see, you know, we would see movies there. Um, this one we saw, the, the, the Lexington Sack Cinema was not one of the cheap theaters. So we must have seen it in the summer of 85. It, it, was, not a, it was not a packed house. 
remember this film was not a huge hit when it came out but the crowd that we saw it with was very enthusiastic and i really liked it my mom went berserk for it loved it and i liked it a lot the first time i saw it i i watched it several times we taped it off of uh cinemax or the movie channel one of those stations later and re-watching it i i could follow the story a lot better but i knew you know you know sometimes when you watch a movie you can't quite follow every part of it but you know something good is happening here and there were enough scenes in the film that were kind of crowd-pleasing scenes that you know made it fun anyway and you know to me kevin costner who i had no idea who he was stole the movie just i was so this guy who i'd never seen before like incredibly handsome goofy guy funny guy and i kind of wish we saw more of this side of kevin costner but to me he stole the movie i loved it a couple of years later when uh the untouchables came out and i saw oh my god the guy from silverado is the star of the movie and later he went on of course to do bull durham which i devoted an entire movie by minute podcast too but i'm very glad i saw this in the theater i'm very glad i saw it on the big screen you know summer movies were different then they're the way that first of all the entire year is summer movie now like they just every week there's a new you know marvel film or superhero film like every week is designed to be the big huge blockbuster of the year happens about 48 times during the year and the summer season used to have like one or two big movies that they expected to be the big hit of the summer and there was a lot of room for other films to be big hits that were not supposed to be the ones that were the tidal wave through the entire summertime but wound up finding their audience in a big way you know, the summer of 84 was supposed to be the summer that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom dominated everything. And believe me, Temple of Doom did very well at the box office. Thank you very much. But Ghostbusters became the big, huge hit. And there were other films like Gremlins and The Karate Kid and Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock that would come out that were not as big but certainly were big and, and kind of kept you going to the theaters. Uh, 85, the big, huge hit movie was Back to the Future. And Silverado was a film that came out. You know, Cocoon also came out. That was a big hit that came out that summer. Uh, Rambo, First Blood Part Two was a big hit that came out that summer. And you know, Back to the Future was kind of became the tidal wave of that summer. And... I think it may have overwhelmed a film like Silverado and kept it from finding the audience that it probably should have found. Obviously, Silverado found a very large audience on home video, especially after a lot of the actors exploded in popularity in the years afterwards. Danny Glover, of course, became a huge star. You know, Scott Glenn and Kevin Klein stars grew. Jeff Goldblum star grew. Uh, Kevin Costner became one of the biggest stars in the world. So I think a lot of people discovered it later on tape, on dreadful quality of VHS tape. But it's, you know, it's a fine movie. It's a fun movie. 
And the one thing I remember, uh, the, the couple things I remember vividly about watching for the first time in the movie theater was uh, the, uh, the John Cleese part. My brother, my, uh, we were all laughing so hard at John Cleese's scenes. Um, and uh, especially uh, today, my jurisdiction ends here. I mean, it's such a great line. Uh, the best line of the movie got a massive laugh and applause break was uh, Danny Glover cocking the rifle and saying, I don't want to kill you and you don't want to be dead. And I, that's just that's just phenomenal screenwriting right there. And the uh, the stampede was just just thrilling, as was uh, Costner shooting the two guys at once uh, on the on the on the patio. Uh, just you know, a lot of great visual moments that were just you know, made the made the film just sort of gorgeous to look at. But one thing I specifically remember, you know, the end of the film, Costner yells, we'll be back, the, the credits roll. And, you know, the audience applauded. And we had a rule in the Sullivan household that when we saw a movie in the theater, we didn't tell, we didn't say what we thought until we got into the car. And my dad would say, no reviews till the car, no reviews till the car. And the reason for that was, and I think it's a good reason, when the film is over, let's say you really liked the movie. And as you're walking out, someone's saying, that was terrible, that sucked. Yeah, you feel kind of defensive. If you thought a film was garbage, and someone's walking out going, oh my God, that's the best movie I ever saw you're going to think that person is deranged. So just out of a courtesy for everyone else leaving the movie theater, we said we leave our views for the car. Um, and so we all got up. And apparently there was someone who didn't adhere to that, got up and sort of, it was kind of about maybe my dad's age, maybe a little bit younger. He got up as the credits are rolling and he turned to his friends with his like his arms wide open, like he wanted to hug someone and said, oh my God, that was an old fashioned Western. And I'll never forget that, that he just, he got it. He understood what it was that he saw an old fashioned Western done well, not deconstructed like the spaghetti Westerns deconstructed the West, not a postmodern Western, like Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and not a parody like Blazing Saddles, but an old-fashioned Western done well. Like the type of film that, you know, this guy may have grown up watching, except, you know, in the past they had been made on the cheap and maybe a lot of them were kind of lousy, but they were kind of fun to watch. Now he saw one, but now it was done well. Which brings me to kind of a weird concept that I've always wanted to talk about. Maybe I'll bring it up in more detail in a, 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 another podcast that I wind up doing. But I really think that there have been eras of franchise filmmaking in Hollywood. That there are times that the films that people make 
as big budget blockbusters that we, they follow certain templates that they want to all capture. That they've said, this is how you do it. This is this film led the way. Let's all make them like this. I think right now we're in the middle of the Marvel era where everyone is seeing what Marvel has done and they're trying to ape it. Okay. But I think that it hasn't always been like that. There, it, there have been changes. There, the way that we make franchise films has changed over the years. And I really think that there are, there are distinct eras that happen. Um, and I think we're going to denote the franchise era. I know there were sequels and franchises beforehand, but I think it really began in the mid-70s. And not coincidentally, when large corporations started taking over the studios and they were no longer run by showmen, but they were run by corporations looking at the films as a commodity rather than works of art. And you had three straight years in the mid seventies where you had a blockbuster film that seemed to change the game. Jaws in 1975, Rocky in 1976, Star Wars in 1977. So I think the first era of franchise filmmaking, where it wasn't that you stumbled across a franchise like James Bond, like Pink Panther, but you set out to create and replicate a blockbuster success. Those, were, those could no longer be looked upon as flukes. They were now things that they were aiming for. We are going to replicate this. We have found a template. So I think between 1975 and 1989 was the Lucas Spielberg Stallone era of franchise films. A Spielberg film, a Spielberg template is essentially take a familiar setting and introduce something unusual to it. A shark a Japanese submarine from 1941, UFOs and Close Encounters, uh, a haunted television in Poltergeist, a extraterrestrial in E.T., and let the story show what happens when this unusual thing enters a familiar territory. And there were lots of other films that took that and basically use that as a template. We're going to create a Spielberg-like movie. I think War Games was like that. Cocoon was like that. Oddly, I think Red Dawn was like that. And Spielberg himself produced so many of them, whether it was Goonies or Back to the Future or um, you know, Batteries Not Included, all these films that were made. I think that was the Spielberg template. The Stallone template was a response to what has happened to the American male which was perceived to become too passive and wimpy or whatever. And it was basically a tough, macho, masculine character is knocked down and has to get up again and win. Obviously, Rocky is that way. Obviously, Rambo is that way. Obviously, the films of, of Schwarzenegger was like that. The films, uh, you know, film like Die Hard was like that. I think these are all films that were, you saw so many, became a, it became a genre of itself that, you know, a film like the, the Expendables is basically 
about the, you know, which came out many years later, but in retrospect, it was about that era of filmmaking. We saw there's a, it just became a massive industry. The Lucas template was the hardest one to replicate. And what that was is the A-B movie. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I think Silverado falls into the Lucas template. The A-B movie. The A movie, the big movies that used to be made were aimed at adults. They were grown-up films. Sometimes there were big expensive musicals or Bible epics or dramas. And the B movie was aimed at the kids. And that could be a Western that was done on the cheap. A sci-fi film like, you know, the serials with Flash Gordon or the serials that became the inspiration for Raiders of the Lost Ark, like Spy Smasher or Zorro or whatever. You know, the way superhero used to be done on the cheap. They were done cheaply. Sci-fi, action-adventure, superheroes, westerns. Those were all films that were B-movies for the most part. And they were done not expensively, not very well, and done for the kids. The kids will, will watch anything. They're the, it's the B-movie. Well, what Lucas did with Star Wars is he took a B-movie, like the Flash Gordon films, and made it with A-movie level quality. The production values would be through the roof. The special effects would be great. The cast would be fantastic. All this different stuff. And that followed through with the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That followed through with other films that try to ape it. Like Star Trek was no longer a you know a relatively inexpensive tv show it's now this massive budget sci-fi epic that they made with star trek the motion picture a film like flash gordon a film like dune a film like tron these were all films that became the a b movie excalibur the a b movie and so many b movies were westerns well this fell into the lucas template and of course, it's a Lucas protege with Lawrence Kasdan. But it was, we're going to make, like that guy who stood up in the Lexington movie theater, we're going to make an old-fashioned Western, but we're going to make it good. We're going to make an old-fashioned good guys versus bad guys Western, but we're going to get great actors. We're going to shoot it beautifully. The production values are through the roof. The music is going to be spectacular. The story is going to be great. The dialogue is going to be great. It's going to be a B-movie but we're going to give it the A movie treatment. And that was the Lucas template. I would, you know, there, there are other films that went along like that. Obviously, Lucas did Willow. I think Conan the Barbarian is almost like a combination of a Stallone and a Stallone template and a Lucas template. But you just saw that there were, you know, her films that were supposedly would be a B movie except the level of quality is through the roof. Now, the other, the, the, the Lucas Spielberg, Stallone era of franchise films ended in 1989 with the release of Batman. That became the Batman era, where it was basically take something super familiar, create posters that are lean, simple, Make the titles lean and simple. It's not Terminator 2 Judgment Day. We're going to call it T2. 
We're going to make ID4 for independence. I mean, we're going to make things simple. You simple image that you could just see immediately. Boom, that's the bat signal. Boom, that's Dick Tracy. Boom, that's the uh, uh, the dinosaur skull for Jurassic Park. Easy to identify, made with kind of not completely seriously, and designed almost that the marketing comes before the film itself. And that ended with what I call the Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings era, where it was, we're going to give the power back, almost the revenge of the nerds. We're going to give the power back to the huge fans and everything is going to be fan service. Everything is going to try to appease those fanboys who can go to the internet and destroy a movie. And so everything is about kowtowing to their wants and their desires, which led us to the Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings films, you know, eventually, uh, you know, Dark Knight and all these films that came out during the Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings era. And that ended with the Marvel era, which is basically creating a cinematic universe that branches out in 58 different directions. It's not even, it's not enough that you have sequels. The sequels have to fold into other films and, and create an intricate universe that every other studio now is trying to emulate and no one can get it right. Even when they have layups, like here, you have the Star Wars characters. No, okay, you're not, okay. Hey, you have Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. Oh, you're, you're flopping at that, yikes. So one of these days I'll really break down my thoughts on the different eras and how they, um, how they work. I think Silverado fits perfectly into the Lucas template, the AB movie. And I think it's great. And I grew up on the AB movies. See, I grew up thinking a sci-fi film was an A movie. I grew up thinking spaceships are supposed to look realistic. That these films were made to be the big, huge, well-made film, not the B movie. Well, either way, that's my... Those are my thoughts on that. And that's basically my thoughts on this episode. But we are going to be bringing in my dear friend, brother Scott Michael Pomerick, is going to be coming in and talking about the next minute. And I'm going to bring in the great Greg Lee, who's a wonderful writer and editor. And the thing they both have in common, other than the fact that they are huge fans of this movie and very knowledgeable about film in general, is they were my buddies of watching movies when I was around this age. We were all high school friends. And so I wanted these two people, rabid film buffs and very talented people, to uh, give a little perspective. Because I knew them then, so I wanted to hear their perspectives on Silverado moving forward. So um, just stay tuned. We're going to be covering it in the upcoming episodes. And... If you like this podcast, well, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or on the main site, which is SilveradoMinute.com. And if you're on Facebook, please join the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener Saloon. On Twitter, we're at Silverado MXM, Silverado Minute by Minute. And there are so many other movie by minute podcasts, including Bull Durham, hosted by yours truly, including the Star Wars Minute. Uh, my personal favorite one is the Indiana Jones Minute. 
But there's so many great ones. There's the Mash Minute. There's Close Encounters. There's there's Dark Knight. There so there's it's there are so many that are fantastic. It seems that Jim O'Kane is involved in three quarters of them. So please please check that out and come back for tomorrow. We'll be covering minute 62 and we're going to see what happens outside of the saloon and see maybe if the friendly warm cob is covering up something a little more sinister but you check that out on the next episode of the silverado minute my name is paul francis sullivan please call me salt yeah